friends, welcome to God on Tap. And as always, I'm Nike Spaulding, and we are back from a very long hiatus. Hopefully this will be the first of many podcasts in a row, but I appreciate your patience. And if you were impatient, then I totally understand and I get that. So, uh, but we are going to finish up what we started, which was we looked at First John, that little letter slash treatise slash all that good stuff. And then we're going to do Second and Third John in these next coming podcasts. And so, um, yeah, so let's jump right in. And so what we're going to do today is a little bit of an intro to Second John, and we'll just look at the first three verses, and then we'll finish it tomorrow, and then we'll do the same thing for Third John so we know what's going on in these letters. And so let's, let's read those first three verses. So this is from Second John, verses 1 through 3. Second John, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. That's the word of the Lord. Okay, friends, so if you haven't listened to the First John intro, I would, I would encourage you to go do that. You can keep listening to this one. It's not like I'm like, stop and go back. But that'll give you even more information, kind of what's going on in this time and period in, in John's writing. And so what we said in that podcast is, is kind of the who, the what's, the wins, and all these letters. And so this is John. I believe this is the, the John that walked with Jesus, the young man that walked with Jesus. I believe he lived a, a later life and was able to be the, the son to Mary the, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, this is your son and this is your mom. That that's the John we're talking about. He, can, he grows up or whatever you want to say, ages, grows up, gets old, gray hairs, whatever. And he's in the area of Ephesus. Okay, So he's writing to the church in Ephesus about these issues that are going on. And so in 1 John, the, the first letter that we have, that letter is not really a letter is what we've said. It's more like, hey, here's this massive treatise that people have. What was going on is, hey, Jesus has come. He's died. He's been resurrected. He, he rose from the dead and, and ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And now what? And so we have books like Acts and other things like that that tell us how these churches were planted. And they were often planted by people who walked with Jesus, people like Peter or people like Paul who didn't exactly walk with Jesus but uh, had, had miraculous encounters, people who were very close to the source. Well, as time goes on, what was happening in this area is that you have false teachers coming in. And so what John is doing is John is the consummate pastor. He writes this very pastoral letter to bring them encouragement, to, br- to remind them of the truths that they first received, and he's trying to get them to hold fast to those things. And so that's what First John is doing. Second and Third John are like these follow-up letters. And whereas First John was more like a treatise, these two are actual letters. They're like actual documents that were intended to go to a specific church. And so, and they're also the shortest documents we have in the Bible. And so they are more letter than treatise. And we're going to look at each of them. They have quite a bit in common and they're short and punchy. They really don't have a lot of points. You'll even see, I mean, my, my Bible has them on, like Second John's on one page uh, and it's 13 verses. And so what John is doing in these letters is he's written his big treatise, it's gone out, and now he's going to write to a specific area. This particular one, Second John, that we're going to look at today, the who, we believe it's John that's written it, where he's writing it to, is to the elect lady and her children. So we're like five words into Second John, and if you're wondering, if have we hit anything controversial? Yes, we have. Okay, so 
This elect lady, this little phrase, this elect lady, my goodness. Okay, so here's the big debate. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to settle it. I think maybe that would be a good Friday feature at some point for me to give you my hot take on this. But the question is, is the elect lady, is that a, a term that means to the church at large? Is that a term that refers to a specific lady? Like does, does Paul, does, excuse me, Paul, does John, is he writing to a house church and he's saying, hey, to this gal pal that I know that I don't need to use her name because I'm using a term of of respect, this elect lady that is this a term of like like where we would say sir or madam, is that what he's doing? So to this woman and her children then would be either her actual children or are or are her children a metaphor for the people in her house church, or is it just to a body of believers and it's not written directly to, to a specific woman. Instead, the elect lady just refers to the body of believers because, you know, the lady might be, you know, the elect people in this body and the, and the ladies of the church. Here's the deal. When you have issues like this in Bible study, this is such a great thing for us to venture into. Uh, you, you could read 10 commentaries and you might get 10 different theories. Or, you know, they might all kind of be wrestling through it and trying to say why it is this, why it isn't this. Good commentators land somewhere, which is why I'm not a good one. Ha! Because I'm not going to land. But here's what I want to help you all with. One of the things that you want to be careful of in Bible study is you're not saying it can't be something simply because you have a bias. And what I mean by that is we should be willing to pursue the truth, even if it makes us a little uncomfortable. Because if we close ourselves off to what it might be before we even consider the merits of that argument simply out of our bias, then we're not being true and trusting that the truth will always stand up against scrutiny. If truth is truth, and truth finds its source not in a concept, but in the person that is Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that if truth is sourced out of a person, and it does not change, and it is not shifting, then we should not be afraid to look at things that maybe make us uncomfortable. What do I mean by that? Well, there are plenty of commentators who just don't believe that a woman could have been the head of a church. So for them, their bias plays in to say, well, it's got to be a figure of speech. Why, why, would, why would John be writing? And they come up with a lot of different reasons. There are others who, who think that their bias is such that, of course, this is a leader of a church. I'm not going to land yet on this because, again, I think it would be a really good Friday feature. But what, what are the things that you would want to look at? Well, for example, in 3 John, John starts his letter almost the same way, except he names the man. He says, to the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And so we've got these two letters from the same author that start the same way, which this evidence is what causes people to be like, why is he writing specifically to a person in the third one and non-specifically in the second one? Shouldn't he be specific, specific? Which again, doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But what I want to encourage us as we're working through scripture on our own and just even myself as I'm leading us in these discussions is, if we could, we can't, we can never put entirely our biases aside. That's crazy. If people like come with a clean slate, you can't, you, you can't, I can't not be a woman. Like I, I can't not like, like come to the text as a modern woman who lives in Dallas, Texas with an education from Dallas Theological Center, like the training, the background, all that stuff. I can't completely push that aside. But the work of people who study their Bible is to be willing to be willing to be fearless when you look at things because you trust that if it's in fact the truth, then you have nothing to fear because truth ultimately comes from our risen Lord and Savior and he is good and he loves us and the truth is good and we should pursue it because it's what sets us free. And so 
that's my encouragement is we have gotten five words into this <laughs> little book. We are eight minutes into this and I have not given you any information other than to tell you it's a mess. But what I want to grab out of this is to move forward. So here's what I'm going to say. I believe it's written specifically to a church. I, I believe this letter is going to a specific place. Now, whether or not the elect lady is an individual or a collective group, I don't know. Well, I have my biases. I think I know. But either way, he's writing to them. And what we're going to look at in the second John letter is the reason why he's writing to them is because in the ancient world, itinerant preachers, which are preachers that went around and shared the gospel, they shared about the teaching, was very common. We see this all through the book of Acts where Paul was traveling around. We see this as people come and go. Well, in the ancient world, there wasn't a Motel 6. There wasn't an Omni. There wasn't a Fairmont. So what did you do? Well, a big part of Christian understanding in the ancient world was hospitality. Hospitality is something that was so subversive in, in the way that not just hospitality is a big part in, in Middle Eastern cultures anyway. So it's not that hospitality in and of itself is subversive. It's that who you choose to be hospitable to was more than just you caring for folks. It was also you being willing to identify with them. So in the ancient world, when, when Christians were traveling around to bring the gospel and to bring the writings, especially people who would bring letters from the apostles and things like that, you, you really were depending on the hospitality of others. You were taking an act of faith and you were going to trust that the people you came to and wherever city you were going were going to be hospitable to you. And so it was very much a Christian mandate. Well, what happens when the people coming to you, though, are wolves? And that's what we're going to be looking at in 2nd and 3rd John. What do we do when the people who are coming to us don't have a message that stands up to the truth? What if they're bringing us a false gospel, which is what John's already looked at in 1st John, and we're going to continue to look at in 2nd John and 3rd John. So for our 1st John, he starts us out in his first three verses. Verses 1 through 3 are our introduction. Then verses 4 through 11 are really the crux of his argument, which is where we're going to look at what do we do with hospitality when people are coming to bring a false gospel, and then he'll end it in verses 12 through 13. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at that latter half tomorrow. But here's the one thing I want to I want to pick up on today, and here kind of our big so what in our first three verses, since we kind of have an idea of what Second John's about. He says, hey, listen, I'm writing to you in whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because it abides in us and it sounds very much like John. I'm writing to you because I love you in the truth and then in the truth and in the truth. And and then he's going to keep going. He's like, grace, mercy, and peace from God and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. And so he's already saying some really high Christology things here. He's saying, hey, from God the Father as well as from God the Father's Son, who is Jesus Christ. And he says, in truth and love. Okay, so in the first three verses, he said the word truth one, two, three, four times in three verses. And, and what does that tell us? Of course, he's trying to really get at something. What I think John's getting at. I think he's getting at the same thing that he was getting at in his first letter. I think he's getting the same thing that he's getting at in his gospel. And I think it's the same thing. I bet if you went into any one of John's churches and, and heard him preach is I think he's trying to remind us that the reason why we're able to discern who we're supposed to bring into our homes is because they're telling the truth about the things that which Jesus taught us, Jesus demonstrated us, and Jesus gave to us through the Holy Spirit in the scriptures so that we can hold on to those things. So I think he literally is saying in the first three letters, like he's saying truth so often because I think he's literally giving side eye to the heretics. Like I think that little emoji where he's just kind of looking off to the side, I think John's 
like ending his text message to the people in the elect ladies church and being like, yeah, I love you. And in truth. And then there's the side eye and he's looking at everybody who doesn't get on board with the truth. And he's like, nah, nah, you guys ain't it. And so this is that drumbeat that John consistently beats is that you need to hold on to what you've been given. And those who come and declare anything that's not that, man, y'all get out of here. And so that the big show up for us is we look at, okay, what is Second John about? What are we going to be learning tomorrow when we, and when we go through the bulk of it? The need for truth to be to be accurate, to be true, right? It, that sounds redundant. It's a like a tautology where you say the same things twice. And I'm not intending to, but it's interesting. We live in a world where often truth uh, is not of value. And that sounds crazy, but I, I'm literally, I see the amount of articles and news and, and research that's coming out where people are saying we live in a post-truth world, which should frighten us. Now, it should frighten us for a whole lot of reasons, um, one of which is just because now we got bad news, right? Like nobody wants to, you know, be reading an article and, and think that they're getting some political insight or some, you know, world, world news insight and turns out all of it's false. And that, that's, that's annoying and maybe frightening in a lot of ways, sure. Um, you know, right now we're in the world, God have mercy, but we're dealing with the coronavirus right now, that, which is spreading in, in China and, and spreading from out of China. And, and, and just for the public safety, we need truth. We need people who are relentless in telling the truth. Like we, we can see that in a very practical level. But the other reason why truth is so unbelievably important is because I said it earlier, is that truth is not just this concept that's devoid from relationship, right? It's not just like four plus four equals eight, and that's the truth. And we're like, okay, great. I can either receive or reject that, but it has no bearing. No, truth is ultimately sourced in the person of Jesus, and it's found in the Trinity, so that when we seek the truth and tell the truth, we are we are borrowing from the capital that we got from God. That we're saying that when we say things that are not true, when we lie, when we, when we skirt the truth, when we do all of that, we're making a mockery of this economy that God has created. In God's economy, truth and beauty and goodness and all these things that we get from God, he determines the value of them. He determines how important they are. And truth is unbelievably important because it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth flows from him. And so when you begin talking about, okay, how do I know how to, how to pick a church? How do I know if, if this relationship that I'm in is, is going to work out? How do I know the type of person I want to be as I show up into the world? I hope what we're going to do is in a world that has devalued truth, in a world where lying just doesn't seem like that big of a deal or skirting the truth or just withholding information, I hope as Christians we'll be the kind of people who say, listen, I want to show up as the kind of person that people can trust because I'm willing to deal in the economy of truth. That when I'm asked hard things, I will, I will tell the truth. That I won't be ashamed of the truth. That I won't be ashamed of the fact that I have a certain ethic about either sexuality or politics or caring for the poor, or caring for the needy. That instead I would tell the truth about what God calls good, good, and what God calls evil, evil, and that I would not confuse those things because that's not where the truth lies. And so I think John is, is giving us an example in the early church of how significant it is that people of God, especially because we proclaim that we follow the way, the truth, and the life, that we would be the people who are vigilant 
in making sure we're telling the truth, that we're vigilant and that what we put on our social media accounts is the truth, and that when we make a mistake or we knowingly lie, if that's what we've done, but maybe it's because we, we just didn't have the info and we said something, we come back later and go, you know what? That wasn't the full truth, or you know what? In light of what I've learned now, I don't think that's the truth anymore. That we would be the kind of people who would repent publicly, that we would that we would fix it, and that we would go back. And this is the drumbeat that John has been teaching us in his first letter that he's saying, this is the litmus test that the people that would come and teach you would teach you the things in accordance to Jesus. And he's going to do it again in our second letter. And we're going to see that as we unpack it tomorrow. But our big so what is I think we live in a world that is comfortable with half-truths. But that's not kindness, and that's ultimately going to leave people wanting for something real and, and leaving wanting something that they can put their feet on, something solid. And I believe that the truth gives us a way to have solid ground. And so I hope that we're going to be the kind of people that when asked hard questions, when confronted with hard situations, when we're in situations where what we say and what we do really matter, that we'd be people who tell the truth. All right, friends, that was a lot, but hopefully it'll set us up for tomorrow as we jump into the last few verses of this tiny, tiny book. But uh, if nobody's told you that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, the God of truth is telling the truth when he says he's crazy about you. Peace.